0: Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben Harris. I'm the pastor here at New City. If you're new here with us, I want to say a huge or extra special welcome to you. If you're here with us every week, it's great to see you here as well. Um, I do want to restate what you just heard, that this is an incredibly huge thing for us to celebrate, that Julia, having finished high school, has said, I want to take time out of my life and spend a year overseas sharing the good news of the gospel with people who have not heard that life-changing news yet. Uh, and I want to be very clear. Her trip cost $27,000. This is not a cheap trip for her to be able to go, and we believe that it is worth every penny to be able to send the gospel forward to other nations, and in particular, to invest in her as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old going out, deciding how do I want to live the rest of my life, we recognize that missions not only changes the world, it changes us, and so I want to challenge you to give generously to help her to be able to go on this trip. There are a number of missions organizations and different countries that we as a church send money to to help move the gospel forward, but it is an extra special privilege when it's somebody from our own congregation who is being sent out, so please help her get there to be able to serve. Uh, If you have your Bible this morning, please go ahead and pull it out, and we are headed back to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one and keep one back there at the welcome table. We are in James and beginning chapter two this morning in the New Testament in a series that I have entitled for us, Talk the Talk and Walk the Walk. Uh, As we have seen thus far, James is a very hard hitting, very in your face, very practical book about what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I do the Christian life? Quite literally, how do I walk in the footsteps of Jesus, my Savior, with the undergirding reality that, that everything that I am called to do as a follower of Jesus, I am not doing it to impress God. I'm not doing it to earn his favor. I'm not doing it to earn brownie points. I'm not even doing it to impress someone else. Everything that I desire to do out of obedience to God and his word is simply out of thankfulness. It's out of gratefulness, knowing that Jesus has done for me by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, he has done for me what I could never do myself. And out of gratefulness for his amazing mercy, grace, and kindness to me, I want to live that grace and that mercy out to other people. And that's what we're going to see here this morning as the author, James, points us back towards the Lord and what it means to follow him. So let's read together now. I'm going to read to us James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Essentially, the first half of James chapter 2, hear now the word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who is shown no mercy... Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask for his guidance and blessing as we look to him this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect and without error. And we thank you in particular, as you have called us to follow after Christ, Lord, that the undergirding promise and reality is that your mercy triumphs over your judgment and justice. And Father, we need that. We, we receive that. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live our lives towards others in just the same way. By your grace alone, can we do it? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways this morning from James chapter two, verse one through 13, that Jesus commands us to live mercy with others the way that he has shown mercy to us. The first of these we see in verses one through seven. Number one, if you're taking notes this morning is this, love the poor and the rich because Christ, Became poor so that you might become rich. The command: love the poor and the rich, but do it because of what Christ has specifically done for you. James gives us the the negative of that positive instruction when he says, Show no partiality. And maybe we don't use the word partiality a lot, but we could use the same a similar word here: show no favoritism, show no discrimination. Now, as we learned last week in James chapter one, the word of God, when it is received with real faith, brings about heart change. James says it brings about pure and true religion. So to apply it, James here gives us what sounds to me a little bit like a bar joke opening here. Did you catch that, right? Two men walk into a church, one of them poor, one of them rich. And what the Bible is saying here is that as believers, as the church, If you give the nice seat to the rich man because he is rich, then you have broken the law of God. You have missed the entire message of the scripture and of the gospel itself. That phrase, uh, sit here at my feet, is particularly gross, isn't it? You can imagine, whether you say those words directly or indirectly, to make someone feel, hey, come sit at my feet, particularly in a a culture where they walked around in sandals and their feet were dirty all the time, is an incredibly dehumanizing thing to do, specifically to the poor. Uh, We don't know for sure, but it is extremely likely that what James is saying to us is not some sort of theoretical idea that he had one day, but rather he's talking about it because he saw it happen in his own church that in Jerusalem church that they made such a horrendous error. I would like to think that no such thing or anything like it could ever possibly happen in our church here or in any church today, but maybe, maybe just maybe, James' church is a whole lot like ours in that we can very easily become blind to sins that our world and our culture says, well, it's okay to act that way, or it's okay to treat people that way. Maybe it became socially acceptable in their world, and so it begs the question for us, where are we blind? Where do we miss, where the world has misinformed us that living a certain way is okay, and the reality is, is God's word has called us to something much better, much higher, much purer, much more merciful. Uh, I would say that at a bare minimum, this passage reminds us that we as a church, when we gather here in particular on a Sunday morning, that we must get off of our phones. We must step out of our comfortable conversations with the people that we know and love the most and make sure that every single person who walks through those doors every single Sunday morning feels welcome, feels valued, feels heard, and feels like they immediately belong to this church family. That they walk away, going, "Man, that was a friendly place, and I could see myself being a part of that group of people." That is what uh, the scripture is inviting us to do and to live. But I think on a deeper level, it also means that we view our homes, right, our houses, not simply as a hideaway where I can get away, but as a place of hospitality, as a place where Christ's hospitality is shown to them, so that the hurting, the poor, the struggling. They feel welcomed and cared for in our homes. It is not a place I retreat from the world, but it's a place that I invite the world in. This word, partiality, if we go back to the Greek, it translates this way. Uh, Receive someone according to their face. Receive someone according to their face. Uh, We love to judge by appearances, don't we? Uh, Maybe we don't discriminate uh, in a way that people can see. Oh, he's discriminating. But in our hearts, there is a a level of favoritism that's taking place to show favoritism because of someone's wealth, uh, because of their cool clothes. Obviously, you guys all love me because of my amazing uh, palm tree shirt this morning, to, to favor someone because of their popularity, their charisma, their education, their race, whatever it may be, is wickedness before God because Christ has shown us the way that we ought to live, and that is that anyone and everyone is welcome in our church, in our homes, in our lives, and we're going to see how much James is going to challenge us to stretch that reality Pastor Kent Hughes uh, tells a story, he says that because the 18th century Church of England had become so elitist and inhospitable to the common man, in 1739, John Wesley, maybe you've heard of John Wesley from history, had to go to the graveyards and the fields to preach the gospel. He says, we have accounts of his preaching to 30,000 coal miners at dawn in the fields. And the resulting saving power of the gospel evidenced by tears streaming down their coal darkened faces. Wesley was no schismatic, but because there was no room in the established church for common people, he reluctantly founded the Methodist Episcopal Church. Tragically, the irony continued on so that 100 years later, Methodist William Booth noticed that the poorest and most degraded were never in church. This experience, followed by many similar catastrophes, led to William and Catherine Booth's expulsion by the Methodists and 14 years of poverty before founding the Salvation Army. Kent Hughes writes, What we do says a whole lot more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say we believe. James tells us that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God. This means that Jesus cares about the poor, and so should we. He cares about the poor and their suffering, and he also tells us that they have a spiritual advantage because money does not distract them from seeing what they need most, which is the riches that only Christ can give. Jesus says exactly this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 part of the beatitudes sermon and he says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven not that only poor people can be saved uh, but rather that materialism always draws us away from knowing Christ more Notice too, James does not condemn rich people for being rich. He condemns them for being unjust. Further, in James, uh, it is actually poor Christians. Notice this, that the people who are at fault are poor Christians. Christians in the church, and James is making the point you yourselves have experienced oppression and injustice by rich, worldly people, and yet in your blindness, you have turned around and inflicted on other poor people the same sin that they were guilty of committing against you. James doesn't say that all rich people are inherently oppressors, he calls us to examine our hearts, and this is true whether you are rich or poor. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 2 says this, rich and poor have this in common, the Lord is the maker of them all. Uh, I have said this to you last week, and you will probably hear often in this series, James focuses in on the poor and the rich and how they relate, but the reality is, is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, meaning rich and poor economically come before the Lord, both guilty of sin. And further, and far more importantly, Jesus has made his grace, his salvation available to both, to all, to everyone. So out of that promise and that kindness, how do we then as believers show no partiality? What, what, how do we do this? Well, verse one gives us the, the foundation. Verse one says, as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, You can imagine this being a a war cry on the front lines as they are doing battle spiritually. Hold the line. What line? Not a literal line, not with guns and knives and weapons. Hold the line of the gospel. In our own day and age in 2022, remain planted and firm in the good news of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, do not wander from the truth that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Hold the line. This gospel of Jesus that saves lives eternally from sin and death makes us new and reborn, and Jesus gives us new lives so that among many things we might care for the hurting and the poor. And the motivational power that we see throughout the New Testament is that James' command is buried in the glorious kindness of Jesus, that Jesus himself, the Bible says, lowered himself into a physically poor, yes, but a spiritually poor situation. Jesus came down to us to save us. He became poor so that we might spiritually become rich. I'm sure you've heard the verse before. It is a beautiful verse and it bears repeating often. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus has never once showed favoritism. Jesus has made the gospel opportunity available to the entire world. And rather than choosing his favorites or being selective or being selfish, Jesus has come and done for us what we could never do, And he willingly takes on the poverty of sin in this life, lives the perfect life, and then dies on a cross for my sins, for our sins. He did nothing wrong. He takes on our punishment, and then three days later rises from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death, so that we can experience the riches of eternal life in Christ. Love the poor, love the rich, because Jesus became poor so that you might become rich. Amen? Number two As we continue to walk through this passage, uh, point number two really flows out of point number one. That is this, in verses eight through 12, we see this, love your neighbor as yourself because Christ has loved you above himself. You see the same reality. We don't do this just to be a good person. It flows out of Christ's love for us, enables us to love others. James here is quoting the Old Testament, what is known as the great commandment that shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5, and also in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Jesus as well in the Gospels quotes these exact Old Testament commandments, confirms that they still apply, and he says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, and he, that is Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second, Jesus said, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets." Now, we know that the Pharisees inject themselves into this situation. We love the hypocritical, Pharisaical, legalistic Pharisees who are always looking to trip Jesus up and and make him look bad, which, of course, they can never succeed at doing. But they come to Jesus, and they're like, Yo, Jesus, got a question. Who exactly is my neighbor? This seems sort of complicated. Is it like a five-mile barrier? Like, how do I know who are the people that I'm supposed to love? And Jesus, sensing their hearts, gives them, if you recall, a story or a parable called the parable of the good Samaritan. And and the bottom line of that beautiful story that Jesus tells them is, listen, if you want to know who your neighbor is, the answer is your neighbor is everyone. And he takes it a step further. And very specifically, he teaches that even your enemy is your neighbor that you are called to love. Jesus loved you is the reason being that we outside of Christ are enemies with God because of our sin. And Jesus has loved you, his enemy, and has invited you to be not just friend, but to be family, to be neighbors, to be brothers with Christ when he didn't have to. And so that leads us at New City to ask the question, well then, who is my neighbor? As a church, as individual believers within New City, who is my neighbor? Well, Take a quick scan around the cafeteria this morning. Found it. These are your neighbors. On your drive home after church, inevitably, I'm sure, to uh, Sonny's Barbecue, scan as you ride down the road, as you see the homes, the people, and the businesses. There you have it. Those are your neighbors. If you go on a missions trip to Madrid, those will be your neighbors. Think about the people that you disagree with most in this life. Whatever your political, social, hot-button topic is, and you're over here, and they're over here, guess what? Your neighbors love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the problem, right? Even as we consider that, there is tremendous weight there because no one has ever pulled that off perfectly except for one. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God the Bible actually goes further here to sort of make sure that we understand the problem. James says, if you keep the, law, the whole law, but fail even once, you are guilty before a holy God. Now, we may uh, say that not loving a stranger well may be a minor sin in comparison to the sin of adultery uh, or murder, but the point here is that they both violate God's character and they violate God's law. Jesus takes some time again in Matthew, Matthew chapter five, Jesus teaches that anyone who is just angry with his brother, I remember hearing this sermon as a child, I have a younger brother and going, oh, I'm in trouble. Jesus says, it's not just murder, but that if you are angry with your brother and you call him a name, that you stand guilty before God for the same sin and worthy of judgment. And then he goes on to say in that same passage, if you look lustfully at a woman, you have committed the sin of adultery in your heart already. What is Jesus getting at? The point is that you cannot minimize your sin before God. And we live in a world that lives to minimize our sin. What I've done is not that big of a deal. What they over there are doing, big problem. They're really bad over there. But here, not so bad but Jesus is teaching us something different. James here is giving us a better word. Yes, some sins are worse than others in the eyes of God, but all sins are a problem because they violate the law of King Jesus. I'm not talking about the state, federal, or whatever, and and there are many good laws there. We're talking about the law of King Jesus. Because here's the reality, one lie, and I'm a liar. One complaint, and I'm a complainer. One broken law, and I am a law breaker, such that everyone deserves, and that's an important word, everyone deserves judgment before a holy and righteous God. We don't deserve mercy. God judges all by the same law, and God has made a way out by one Savior, Jesus Christ, and mercy through him received by faith alone. You know, James talks about the law a lot. We've seen it in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we'll continue to see it throughout the remainder of James. So I wanted to take a second to think about, you notice that James mentions the law, and he talks about the law being something that convicts us or, or points out our, our sin. We get caught because of the law. But then he also keeps referring to the law as this thing of liberty, as this thing of freedom. And we ought to ask the question, well, how can it be Both. What I want to point out to you, again, if you're taking notes, this is a helpful thing to think about, that in Scripture, Old and New Testament, we really have three different purposes or uses of God's law. John Calvin was maybe the first to sort of tease out these realities, but think about the way that God uses the law. The first use of the law is to be a mirror. First use of the law is as a mirror, and what it does is it shows us not only God's holiness and righteousness, but it shows me my sin. That's that convicting reality. I'm guilty. It's the first use of the law, that it ought to convict us and show us God's goodness. The second use of the law is to restrain evil. Uh, Oftentimes, the second use of the law is referred to as the civil use of the law, and that is why we have laws in our our city, our state, our nation, and our world. The law cannot change a heart. We see that message throughout Scripture. We see that in our daily lives. The law cannot change a heart, but it does have some ability, because of its threat of justice, to restrain evil. It's the second use or or purpose of the law. The third use of the law, and this is where that idea of freedom, of liberty, really comes into play, because for believers... Born again believers whose hearts have been regenerated. We've experienced God's grace. He has made us new. When we encounter God's law, now it is a lamp and a guidepost for how can I live to be like Jesus? How can I follow after him? And when I live my life the way that God has called me to live it, there is in fact freedom. There is joy that comes when I obey the Lord. That's the third use of the law, and it leads me to do good works. Am I earning my salvation? Absolutely not. Is it a response of gratefulness? Absolutely. See, so the law is meant first to, to bring us to the end of ourselves. I cannot do life on my own. As I have tried, I have failed. As I have tried to do right, I have done Wrong. And ultimately it points us to our need for a savior, salvation, mercy comes through Christ. And in the new life that he has given us, that we might walk in the freedom of obedience. James writes, so speak and so act. Uh, This is where the, the whole idea of our tagline for this series, talk the talk and walk the walk of Jesus empowered by his grace, or in this case, Love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus has first loved you in that same way. Third and finally, one verse, verse 13 finishes out James teaching to us here this morning. Our third and and, and final application, choose mercy over justice because Christ's mercy for you triumphs over judgment. Choose mercy over justice. Why? Because as we've seen throughout this passage, what Christ has done for me defines how I live the rest of my life, particularly towards other people. Now, the first part of 13, if you have your Bible open, go back and look at that. It's not on the screen, but just dial into the reality. It says that judgment is without mercy to the one who is shown no mercy, You are not going to get mercy if you don't show mercy is what that verse is saying. Do not explain that verse away. (laughs) That verse should convict us. It should cause a healthy fear in all of us. Do not sidestep the severity of it. And this should be the case both for the unbeliever and the believer. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, first of all, we love justice, When it's for someone else, right? Oh, what they did is so bad. Get them. But when it's us who are guilty, suddenly we don't love justice quite as much. Um, Our culture is obsessed with their own version of justice. And as believers, we should absolutely call for justice. It is God's characteristic first. But we should always ask the question, what happened to mercy? Mercy. God the Father does both perfectly. And believer here, once again, you are commanded because of what Christ has done to show mercy. In fact, doesn't the scripture say, if you desire justice, leave it to the Lord. How can we who have experienced God's mercy not show it to others? Particularly when you have been personally sinned against. Big sin, small sin, medium sin, I don't know, but we all have been in the position of someone has sinned against me. And the question is this, does mercy have the final word or is it justice? Uh, I I love the book, the novel. Uh, We usually refer to it as Les Mis, in my best French, Les Miserables. In English, it means the miserable ones. It was written by Victor Hugo in 1862. Tells the story. If you don't know the story, and if you do know the story, forgive me if I butcher it. It's a great story, but it tells the story of Jean Valjean, who is in prison for 19 years. What was his crime? Stealing bread so that his sister's children would not starve. Valjean entered the prison sobbing, knowing that he would spend so many years there for something so insignificant. But Victor Hugo writes in his book that Jean Valjean left dead inside after 19 years of unrelenting justice. This justice is personified in the opposing character, Inspector Javert. So we have Valjean in prison and we have Javert, who stands for righteousness, decency, the law, order, morality, and is the voice of terror. After Valjean's release, he struggles understandably to re-enter society. And eventually he comes to meet a Christian bishop who is the first to offer him a place to stay. And he gives him a warm bed and he gives him food to eat. Valjean, in his continued sinfulness of of his own, that very night steals the silver out of the bishop's house and out of his church and runs away, only to be caught by the police that very night and brought back to face the bishop. And in an act of mercy, the bishop says... No, this was, I gave this to him. This was a gift. He says to the police, he didn't steal anything. This was a gift to him. In fact, he walks over to a table and he grabs the two nicest candelabras that are there. And he says, you Valjean, you forgot the very best. You forgot to take it with you. And in that act of mercy, Valjean's life is undone. Because for the first time, instead of experiencing justice, he has ex- experienced Mercy. He expected condemnation, but what he got was forgiveness. Judgment killed Valjean, but mercy made him alive, writes Victor Hugo. Valjean lives the rest of his life sacrificially loving and caring for a variety of people, in particular a young orphan girl whose name is Cosette. But Javert, policeman Javert, is always hunting Valjean down. Because Valjean technically has broken his parole. And so for that, there must be justice. And in a final climactic scene, Javert uh, is caught and imprisoned by revolutionaries pushing for revolution in France. Javert, the policeman, is now in chains. And Valjean finds himself, he stumbles into the situation and they hand him a gun and they say, do whatever you want with this horrible creature. And Valjean in that moment, having the opportunity to get justice for years and years of suffering and hurt at the hands of Javert, cuts the rope and sets him free. The ultimate act of undeserved mercy to this man, Javert, and Javert cannot handle it. He rejects the idea of mercy. It must be the law, it must be justice. And so his life tailspins out of control, and he eventually jumps off of a bridge and ends his life because of his disgust for mercy. In the face of unmerited mercy, there can be only two responses. One man, his life has changed, and he experiences new life, and the other man rejects the mercy, becomes even more hardened, and dies. Such is the mercy of King Jesus, the beautiful kindness and mercy of Jesus to every sinner who is willing to admit, I am a sinner and I cannot do this life on my own, who is willing to be humbled. But the legalist who loves only justice, mercy becomes an inescapable problem that hardens one's heart. It's important for us to understand, mercy is not free for the one who gives the mercy, is it? If you have experienced mercy, then by definition, it was free. When God shows mercy to you, it is an act of free grace. It cost me nothing to be forgiven of my sins, but it cost the one who gave it everything. It didn't cost Jesus money. It wasn't a certain amount of dollar bills in order to save you from your sin and from hell. Jesus gave up his own life. It cost him his life. And he didn't say, just take the china. He said, no, 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 take the candelabras as well. In Jesus' death and resurrection, you are not simply made not guilty, but he says, come and be a part of my family, not just my neighbor, but be my brother. Experience life as a son or as a daughter of God. Experience a new identity. Be freed from the chains of your sin. Come and be a part of my family is the message of mercy. God's mercy triumphs over judgment we have got to understand, God is perfectly just, and he is perfectly merciful, and don't miss this reality. God has the right to judge us. I, as a sinner, I do not have the right to judge someone else. God has the right. He is just in judging us for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.10 makes it clear, for all For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If that was the end of the scripture, guys, we would be in bad shape. All humanity deserves condemnation for our sins, but thank God he has shown his mercy through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God has sent his son Jesus to do for us what we could not and we would not do ourselves. That's why Romans 8:1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Horatio Spafford wrote a song that we know well and he declares this reality when he sings my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. As if you have asked Jesus for his mercy and forgiveness in your life, then you have it. There's nothing that you can do to earn it or deserve it or pay it back. And if you have never asked for his mercy and kindness and grace towards you, then you still stand before the justice and judgment of a holy God who has the right to judge you for your sin. There's no difference between saved and unsaved except for God's grace to us. It's not a matter of us being a church of holy people who do good things all the time. Quite the opposite. This is a group of sinners saved by grace who want to know, don't want to see every other sinner in this city, know that same grace and mercy. Amen? Amen. And when you've experienced Christ's mercy, it enables you in a way that you never could before to show mercy to others, that mercy triumphs over judgment in your life as you leave this place today. Let's take a moment and let's go to our good and merciful Heavenly Father.